You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, it is so good to see you. It's good to be together. Uh, this all morning, it's just been a wonderful experience of family, from the youngest to the oldest. We really are an intergenerational family here at University Presbyterian Church. And I see some little ones. I see some kids uh, who are still here. So I have a little something for you. Uh, it's, a, it's a riddle. What is invisible and smells like carrots? Anyone know? The ether bunny. <laughs> Sorry, that's not even good for the adults. I, I only get to use that once a year. Some of you have seen the movie The Big Short, and it begins with a quote from Mark Twain. It just sort of floats in the air. Mark Twain says, It ain't what you know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Think about that. In the context of the movie, what everybody knows for sure is that the housing market in America will never collapse. Everybody, that is, except a small group of investors, uh, a group of skeptics who believe something different, bet against the market, and who become fabulously wealthy when the bubble bursts. I thought about this as I thought about Easter because Easter's a day for skeptics. A lot of us are skeptics on Easter Sunday. And maybe some of us who aren't skeptics ought to consider being uh, skeptics. After all, the story's awfully familiar, isn't it? I mean, we know all about it, the, the peeps, the bunnies, the empty tomb, blah, blah, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, we say Christ is risen, and then we say, you know, Hawaii upset cow, and we go, hmm, and back to our brackets. I mean, it's just every year, it's such a familiar story, it's really easy to take it in stride, and life just continues on the way it did before. And I wonder if maybe we ought not to do what a skeptic does, which is raise some really good questions about the meaning of it all. Frankly, about the facticity of it all. I mean, what really happened that first Easter morning? If we don't ask this question, there's a real risk that we will just absorb cultural assumptions and end up living in what I could call an Easter bubble. So let's be skeptics this morning, just for a few minutes. And I want to invite you into a company of skeptics that are introduced to us by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Corinthians. Hopefully you have it printed in the bulletin in front of you. I want to call your attention to our text for this morning, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. We've printed it. What I want you to know about this is that this letter that Paul wrote to Greece was written in A.D. 54. That's about 24 years after the Romans crucified on a cross a rabbi from Galilee named Jesus of Nazareth. That happened in AD 30. Now, inside of this passage that we're about to read together, there are a few verses that historians tell us actually predate Paul's writing of this letter. It's an early Christian creed. In fact, the Corinthians probably knew it, probably knew it by heart, circulated widely. And that creed, which is verses 3 through 5, was written inside of three years after Jesus was crucified. That would make this the earliest part of the entire New Testament. All right, you ready to read? If you're able, let's stand together, read God's Word, and when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. If you believe it or are coming to believe it, you could say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading His Holy Word. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you've come to believe in vain. 
For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. It's clear that Paul is engaging the question that must be in his reader's mind, what exactly happened to Jesus? His readers are trying to work it out. They know the basic facts like we do, that Christ died according to the Scriptures. They know that he was buried in a tomb, and they know that there's this claim that he rose from the dead. There's got to be something deep down inside of their heart, perhaps rarely acknowledged, that says, maybe it ain't so. Maybe not all of it. They're raising questions. They're skeptics. What I want you to notice, first of all, and I think this is wonderful, is that Paul the Apostle takes their skepticism seriously. You see that? He respects the integrity of their unbelief. There's no scolding here. There's none of this, oh, you just got to believe. My, 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 don't you ever raise that question in this community. There's no coercion. This is what we all believe, fall in line. No. He invites them to take their questions seriously. He engages them in their questions, and he provides them with some meaningful evidence that allows them to extend their inquiry, pursue the question. And he does so by introducing them to a company of skeptics. And I love this about Paul. So I want you to meet some other people that struggled uh, to believe in the resurrection as well. Uh, maybe if we can live with their questions, we will meet the Savior that they met. So, as Paul reminds them of six meetings with skeptics, I'd like just to walk through this passage with you. You might find it helpful to leave it open. Let's meet these six parties. The first is Cephas, or Peter is the name we usually know him by. Cephas is the Aramaic name. On Sunday afternoon, apparently, Jesus had a private meeting with Peter after he had risen from the dead. We read about it here. We read about it also in Luke 24, 34. They say, Simon has met the Lord. Now, Here's the question I think that Peter must be asking about Jesus. Keep, keeps him from believing that Jesus would have risen from the dead. How can I believe this after I have been so disappointed? This is a question I know that many of us raise. How can I believe all of this after I've been so disappointed? It's a question that arises from our disappointment. Now, you may be familiar with the story about Peter and how he disappoints himself in denying Jesus three times. But I want to ask you a question. Do you know why Peter denies Jesus? It's because Jesus disappointed Peter. The one thing we know about Peter from the very beginning is that he's looking for the Messiah. He's looking for what the Jews called the Christ. This is the one who someday was thought to come in glory and majesty and power. He would come and rout the enemies of God, turn God's people back to God and bring a global peace. 
Make the world what it's supposed to be. And you know what? Jesus didn't do that. There's a moment in Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Peter gets the right answer. And then, uh, you know what Jesus says to him? He tells Peter about the resurrection. Peter struggles to believe it. Jesus says, the Son of Man will be handed over. He'll, be, he'll suffer, he'll be killed on a cross, and the third day, the third day, he will rise again from the dead. And you know what Peter says to that? He says, God forbid that it would be so. That'll never be, that'll never happen. This is Jesus, this is Peter telling Jesus that Jesus just spoke blasphemy. This will never happen to the Messiah. He'll never suffer. You're the Messiah. You'll never die. And then that fateful night, before the cross, Peter will watch in a courtyard from a distance as a foreigner, a Roman, will spit in the face of Jesus, will slap him. And Peter watches his idea of who Jesus is dissolve. He can't hold both his notion of the Messiah together with his experience of Jesus and that moment, and he experienced existential disappointment. So he's a skeptic. The next party mentioned here by Paul, it's actually in the Creed, is the 12, which is fascinating because this is the biblical basis for the Seahawks right here. Uh, <laughs> actually, so it, I'm sure they were fans, but it doesn't refer to that. The 12 um, was a technical term early on for the first disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, the 12 apostles. And this is, I think, their question. How can I believe something that I can't see? See that? It's, it's the realism that gets in the way. Jesus appears to the 12, uh, not all of them, the 12 in an upper room that Sunday night, first uh, day of the resurrection. Um, they're not all there. Thomas isn't there. And uh, that becomes interesting. Thomas becomes sort of a, a type uh, for all of the response of the 12. John tells us the story when the apostles come to Thomas and they say, he is risen. Uh, Thomas does not say he's risen indeed. You know what Thomas says? He says, I doubt it. Right? I mean, that's paraphrasing. But, you know, this is Thomas the doubter, right? And they're all doubting uh, before they have really good reason to believe. Uh, he said, he, this is what he says, unless I can put my finger in his nail prints or in his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. Why? Because he's a realist. Right? He's an empiricist. See, I, I, as much as I would love to believe this idea that our good friend's no longer dead, I just can't go there with you. I have too much experience of dead people. They consistently stay dead, okay? I, I don't live in a world where, where, that's, doesn't, where, where anything other than that happens. And he, he's got, they all have a kind of intellectual integrity. See, they're skeptics, the 12. And then we move on here. Paul uh, lists the, the 500. Now, here I think he may be um, adding to the original creed. By the way, the creed hangs together on the word that, 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 that. Now, uh, we're coming into verse 6 where he's moving behind. He says, then, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters. Now, who are these 500? What's their question? I think they're asking, how can I believe something so good, the resurrection, in a world that's so hard? I mean, this is the question that emerges from suffering. Really? See, this is an appearance that happened some days later after that first Easter Sunday, likely in Galilee. 500 people is a big crowd. Couldn't have happened inside. Would not have happened in Jerusalem, given the climate there. So likely this is something happening up in Galilee. And Matthew, at the end of his gospel, tells us about a group that gathered on a hill in Galilee. Uh, Eleven are there, and I think uh, these other 500 are as well. Matthew writes in verse 16, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some 
doubted, which I love because it means you can be there with a resurrected Christ physically, worship him, and still some doubt it. Now, why would they doubt? Well, we don't know. This is pure speculation on my part. It's just that wherever Jesus went around Galilee, he encountered great suffering. He moved from village to village. He encountered a people that didn't have modern medicine, life expectancy, extremely short. He just keeps meeting people uh, who are suffering, the widows, the poor, people who are blind, lepers, outcasts, invalids, people struggling with mental illness, forced into prostitution, under Roman oppression, extortion. And here's what I know. Suffering raises questions, hard questions, that simple, easy answers just don't satisfy. And so they're skeptics, the 500. They're not going to believe in the resurrection. Now, four, James. The question I think James is asking that keeps him from believing that Jesus is alive is how can there be anything new or surprising in life? Really? This arises from his familiarity. James had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. Now, there's no other record of this except uh, this text right here. So we don't know what happened. But what we do know about James is he's one of the brothers of Jesus. And the brothers of Jesus, John tells us in chapter 7, do not believe in Jesus. In fact, in John 7, they're taunting Jesus. They went all the way through his life. They knew him longer than anybody else, and they, they didn't believe. Let me put it to you this way. How many of you have a brother? Think of you, some of you kids here. You have, a, you have an older brother. Maybe you are an older brother. If, if you have a brother, um, ask yourself this question. What would it take for you to convince your brother that you're the son of God? <laughs> you see the problem? I know you want to do that, right? There are two kids down here, right? You'd love to convince your sister that you're the son of God, that you're the Messiah. You can work on that today, but good luck. Um, and, and Jesus didn't have any better luck with his brothers either. And James is going, you know, you can do the mystery man when you go to other towns, the whole wonder worker thing, but we know you too well. You know, not in our town. This isn't going to work. I've known you your whole life, Jesus. Uh, you're a good guy, but let's not get carried away with this whole son of God, Messiah thing, right? So James is a skeptic. And then five, all the apostles. These people, I think, are raising the question, how can I believe when no one else does? I don't want to be the only, quote, fool on the block who believes in things like resurrection. This is a question that emerges from the culture. Who are these apostles? Well, these are more than just the 12 apostles. Apostle means someone who's sent. This is an official uh, commissioned representative of Jesus. And he, represent, he commissioned many people. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we see a, 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 an account that may be this encounter. We read here that Jesus presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is Jesus down in Jerusalem. And do you notice that? That Jesus needed, Jesus needed to bring some convincing proofs. He's risen from the dead. He's walking up to people and he's going, hey, it's me, it's Jesus. And they're going, I don't think so. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. You know, so he's, he's, I don't know what the proofs were, but he's got something up his sleeve that he's, he uses to try to convince these skeptics. So the, the point is they're skeptics. And let me tell you what's special about Jerusalem. It's a city. And Jerusalem, is, they're the keepers of the culture. This is what keeps us from believing in Jesus oftentimes in urban centers. Every culture has what philosophers call a plausibility structure. Uh, follow me here. This is a set of beliefs that you believe uh, that you use as a litmus test for any new belief. If a new belief comes along and it doesn't agree with your plausibility structure, you can't fit it into the beliefs that you already have, you'll reject it. And every culture has a plausibility structure that shapes the culture and makes it cohesive. It also tends to reinforce uh, the status of its elites. 
And so there's a fascinating incident in Matthew 28 towards uh, the end of the chapter there where the Roman soldiers who've been paid to guard the tomb have to come back and report to the people who hired them, the rulers in Jerusalem, that the tomb is now empty. That's not a good report. And uh, they don't take it well. And they tell these Roman soldiers, here's what we want you to do. We want you to tell people that you fell asleep and that the disciples came and stole the body. Circulate that. This is the first propaganda campaign in the New Testament. It's interesting. Now, notice one thing. They have to admit that the tomb is empty in order to confront this rumor that Jesus is risen from the dead. That's quite an admission. But also notice that they have to provide an alternative narrative, another story that will support uh, their um, role in the culture. So uh, all the apostles are skeptics as well because they believe what the culture tells them to believe. Sixth, finally, we see me. Jesus appeared to me, Paul says. This is, of course, to Paul. And I think the question he raises is perhaps most poignant of all. How can I be loved by someone I have resisted all of my life? I, I, I submit to you that's a very meaningful question for all of us. How can I be loved by somebody that I have resisted all of my life? This is a question that arises from our hostility uh, to God. The truth is that when Jesus is risen from the dead, he makes a claim on our lives, and we resist that claim. Now, Paul does not want, unlike the others, to believe in the resurrection. He's not just a skeptic. He is an opponent. He's an enemy. This encounter with Jesus happens in AD 33, around the same time this creed is being formed. It's three years after Jesus has died. He's traveling on a road from Jerusalem to Damascus. We read the account in Acts 9. He's been given a warrant for the arrest of Christians. Paul is killing Christians. He's a highly sophisticated, extremely well-educated teacher, rabbi. He's a Pharisee in Jerusalem. He's very committed to the faith, and uh, he's trying to stamp out a heresy, as he believes it, uh, that's, that's now spreading through uh, the region that Jesus rose from the dead. They're all skeptics, all six of these parties. They do not want to believe. They have a hard time believing that Jesus has risen from the dead. And yet, they come to faith in Jesus. I want to suggest to you, that's really important. And I am so grateful. So that's why I say, thanks for the skeptics. I thank God for these skeptics for three reasons. And I want to work out quickly three implications for us today. The first is that these skeptics reassure us. You and I are in good company with our doubts. We raise the same questions that they raise. Questions that arise out of our own disappointments, out of our own commitment to realism out of our own experience of suffering, our own over-familiarity with the old story. They emerge out of our culture here in Seattle and other places. They emerge also out of our own hostility. And Paul says, be gentle with yourself, as he is with the Corinthians. Respect the integrity of your own belief. There's good reason not to believe. They reassure us. The second implication, we can thank the skeptics because they help us believe, actually. If we can see through their eyes, maybe we'll be able to see what they saw. And in every case, what overcomes the skepticism is not a slick argument or a lot of reading or seminars. It's simply a person, the living person of Jesus Christ. It's an encounter with him, a personal encounter with him that moves them from unbelief to belief. Think of Peter. On the, on the beach, the Sea of Galilee, around a campfire, eating one day with Jesus. 
He's thinking to myself, I can't be doing this. He's dead. I'm having lunch with a guy who's dead. Pinch me, right? But now he believes. Thomas happens to be in the room, the upper room, a week later when Jesus does uh, come back and appear. And Jesus walks up to him, I believe, with a smile on his face. And he says, Thomas, he says, Thomas, put your hand in my side, my finger, in your, your finger in my hands. And you know what? I don't think Thomas even needs to. What does he do? He drops to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. That's the first Christian confession on the lips of a doubter. It comes to him through all of his unbelief and skepticism there. The 500. It's interesting that Paul says, you know, these 500, most of them are still alive. He says some have died, but most of them are still alive. Why does he say that? He's saying because this is a falsifiable claim. You could take your little microphone and you could go and start interviewing these people. They're still alive. They're around. Ask them. They'll tell you Jesus is really alive. They know because they encountered him. There's a scholar in the 1950s who wrote an article that still gets footnoted. And he says, here's why, here's, these, these are the 500, I think, just imagining, up in Galilee. It'd be, who'd be gathering to that hill with Jesus? It'd be the widow of Nain and her son who was resurrected at a funeral. Uh, it would be the bridal pair from Cana and their newborn baby. It'd be Jairus, his wife and their daughter, who was tragically sick. It'd be the letter, leper that turned around to say thank you and his nine other buddies. It'd be the demoniac healed from intense agony. It'd be the woman that Jesus met at the well and all the villagers from Sukkar who came to believe through her testimony. It'd be Zacchaeus, the tax collector. You know, these would be the people that would travel from far and wide to hear this report and to see for themselves. And as Jesus walked up that hill, they would come to believe. They're on this journey of believing. All the apostles, well, uh, James, sorry, James, uh, he would wonder that Jesus came to find me, that he pursued me, his brother, who scoffed at him. He would become a leader in short time, the church in Jerusalem. They would call him camel knees because he would bend to knee so frequently that his knees swelled over time. He wanted to talk to his brother knowing he was alive. All the apostles would carry the good news of Jesus Christ to Europe, Africa, Asia, our newspaper today is dated because of their witness. And Paul, finally, there's no other explanation for Paul's belief and the turnaround in his life but that he met Jesus on that road to Damascus. And because of that, he's able to articulate in the most beautiful way ever done the greatest doctrine of the Christian faith. That is the doctrine of grace, that God loves his enemies and has reconciled them to himself in Jesus Christ. Well, Peter would be whipped shipwrecked, stoned, and ultimately martyred in Rome because he'd be unwilling to give up that conviction that Jesus is alive. We thank the skeptics because they reassure us, they help us believe, and finally, they help us believe better. Paul invites us to pursue our questions, to doubt, but even to doubt our doubts so that we might find true truth in Christ, the one truth that overturns all others. This is what scientists need to do, as Tom has shown us, had to wait 100 years to validate the theory of gravitational waves, but it's only as we raise questions and seek answers that we advance human knowledge. Same in the life of a believer. If we don't do so, we'll keep God in a box or in a bubble, and our faith will be too fragile, and it will rupture. If we do raise questions and seek good answers, we can live with the mystery and the redemption of an incomprehensible God. Well, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. I got a letter last week from a woman down in California who worships with you every week through our radio ministry. And she said, George, I just want to thank you for the ministry of UPC. Two years ago, we met Jesus. 
Two years ago, my son woke up semi-conscious, drugged, and suicidal. We had more questions than answers, and we did not know what to do. But Jesus met us there. The risen Savior came into our lives, convinced us that he was real, gave us eternal life, and he has been changing our lives. This young man now works helping other addicts uh, come out of uh, their drug addiction. Well, this list ends with me, and it begins with you. So I want to ask you, what do you know this morning, this Easter Sunday? What do you know? What I know is that all of us are struggling with something in our lives. The good news of the resurrection is that it's not going to get the last word. Everyone knows that death is the end, or do we? The skeptic who meets Jesus knows more than that, that the broken don't stay broken, that the sick don't stay sick, that the hurt don't stay hurt, and that the lost don't stay lost because the dead don't stay dead. Let's see if you can help me with this. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we bend our knees like Thomas, like James. We open our minds and hearts to you and invite you to bring the mystery. We don't attempt to explain you. We just want to worship you. Thank you for the gift of life. Make us with you alive in Christ. We pray that you'll give us the grace to receive this news and also to share it today. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.